Welcome to episode 30 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Complaints about the Hollywood tradition of remakes are as boilerplate and pointless as June Allison's attempts to emote convincingly. Remakes are deeply embedded in Hollywood's history. American studios have always remade pictures and surely always will. A cynic might remark that it's all about surefire box office cash grabs, But there's nothing wrong in reinterpreting a story for a new audience with different actors, settings, or themes. Good stories are made to be told over again. Joan Crawford's remake of Gloria Swanson's Sadie Thompson is a damn good picture. Margaret Sullivan does a great job updating Irene Dunn's melodrama from 1932 into the 1941 version of Backstreet. Douglas Sirk's 1959 remake of John Stahl's Imitation of Life from 1934 loses the original picture's emphasis on women who combine forces to build an empire, but it has many other elements to recommend it, such as the perils of fame and a protest against white supremacy that intuits the civil rights movement that stirs on the horizon. Legends like Clark Gable demonstrated their longevity by starring in their own remakes. He remade Red Dust from 1932 over again in 1953's Mogambo. Women in the audience swooned for each version. Though with anything, there are limits. Please keep your paws off the women from 1939. You might blanch at the very idea of remaking a tried-and-true classic like William Wyler's The Letter from 1940, starring Betty Davis in one of her best roles where she walks all over men and gets what she fancies. But that classic is itself a remake from a 1929 production of The Letter, with Gene Eagles in the starring role. Who would have thought that just repeating the simple word rubber could convey so much undiluted contempt for a man? Gene Eagles scorches the earth and salts it with ire from her speech. She lays out more fire for Reginald Owen than all three of the Mother of Dragons progeny combined. Vincent Sherman's The Unfaithful from 1947 is technically a remake, but only on paper. It shares the basic premise from the original and not much else. The director revised the script to offer a post-war context that's original and reinterprets the story in a meaningful way. Anne Sheridan gives a good performance, and I really like her, and although she's the star of this picture, she's not my focus for this episode. At least once, I would have liked to have seen her blow her cool just a little bit at all the finger-pointing and accusations she receives from men. Even though I always celebrate underplay over scenery-chewing, Anne Sheridan seems a little too collected and calm for a woman who has been burnished with a scarlet A and stands accused of murder in the bargain. She's too docile and quiet. At the start, Anne's character Chris expects her husband to return from his tour of duty in the morning. After she returns from an evening at her friend's divorce party, she's attacked by a strange man in her home. She kills him in the struggle. The police arrive with questions, as they do. 
Once they discover that she not only knew the man, but had a one-off sexual affair, the men with a pay grade above the street beat assume she's in a slippery slope. In their logic, a dame who commits adultery sets a moral compass for murder. Break one of the Ten Commandments and you'll break them all. They seem convinced of it. Good women had no natural desires according to men in power. A woman's patriotic duty during the war years required them to wall themselves up in the home like a modern-day anchoress such as Julian of Norwich. Only factory or volunteer work was an acceptable pastime. They oversold the whole keep-the-home-fires-burning narrative. For a good portion of the runtime, I felt like I was watching Anne receive the Gilda treatment, a backhanded strain of rampant misogyny that runs through much of film noir. The only things missing from Gilda were the absence of musical numbers, opera gloves, and column gowns. Viewers are smack dab in the middle of the post-war suspicion of women that saturates film noir. Men on screen take far too much pleasure in condemning women for lying and cheating as if they were little darlings throughout the war. Anne's character Chris had a human moment. She succumbed to loneliness, and suddenly she's a double-crossing slattern. Thank goodness for Eve Arden. She's not having one moment of this shame campaign. Her character Paula isn't interested in what men think or the way they've enjoyed running things for the past number of years. Paula hosts a party to usher in her independence from marriage. From the male point of view present on screen, Paula's supposed to be the cautionary tale, a heartless modern woman who treats divorce as a reason for a cocktail party. Men like Lou Ayers regard her as a pitiless mercenary, an updated version of the gold digger from the Depression era who has suddenly become socially acceptable since the war. Look at the sour puss on Lou Ayers during the party scene. The only thing missing is a string of pearls for him to clutch. His face registers disapproval, scorn, and contempt. How dare she throw a cocktail party to celebrate a divorce? End times are nigh, his disposition screams loudly. But for women in the audience, when we clock his judgy face, it's a clear signal that Eve's Paula is living her best life. When men like her attorney and husband disapprove so strongly, in a woman's picture context, it's the equivalent of a car chase with explosions that we find in a macho action picture. Watching men squirm and tut-tut boosts our adrenaline. Maybe that's why Lou seems to approve of Anne Sheridan. She's so passive and dependent on men. Eve Arden's Paula is far ahead of her time. As an efficient hostess, she lets the crowd know that she has a lot of catching up to do and her future is wide open. Eve's character Paula hustles a tray of martinis, offering them to the crowd with the enticing, nourishment anybody? In the middle of her own little victory celebration, instead of VE or VJ day, Paula pops corks and pours vodka and gin for VM day, victory over marriage. When Lou, who plays her attorney, enters and resists the festive tone of the occasion, she pokes fun at his grouchy disposition, saying, How acid we are tonight! Paula's cousin, Anne Sheridan, sucks up to the attorney and supports his belief that the gathering is untoward. Naturally, Anne Sheridan wins Lou's approval. 
Women often believe that if they follow the rules and seek male approval, they'll be treated well and protected. Only that isn't what happens to Anne Sheridan for most of this picture. Paula gathers the party goers around her and stands up on an ottoman or something and announces that, quote, six years ago, I committed a crime against society. I married a man. Anyway, I've taken my punishment and today I've been pardoned or is it paroled? Then she thanks her divorce attorney for making her freedom possible. He drops a snide comment that he only handles the paperwork. He leaves the rest to the women. That's it exactly. Our little hobby horse is, is destroying marriages. Instead of a somber or, humili- or humiliating ritual, Paula turns divorce into her own liberation day. She's not in hiding, and she's not worried about what the neighbors think. A hair shirt or a veil would not suit her personality. Paula wears chic, glittery jewels sewn into a crisp white blouse worn with a wide gold belt and slim skirt. Prada once declared that style is instant language. For Eve Arden in the scene, clearly her ensemble says champion. Teasing the men at the party, she declares that she's back on the market with her own hair and teeth and most everything original. I've never seen Eve Arden in a better wardrobe than she has from Travilla in this picture. Tailored suits with interesting accessories make her into an aspirational modern woman. Eve Arden's Paula turns the tables in her favor, so she's no object of pity. She's not tragic. She's independent. When her ex shows up, he looks disheveled, drunk, forlorn, and out of sorts. Everything about his aspect telegraphs violence. He's the cast-off man who can't get over the fact that his wife wants nothing to do with him, that his dirty socks are in no way her raison d'etre. By way of greeting, she quips, Well, the corpse at the postmortem. What's the matter? Did I forget something when I packed your things? The man jumps straight to threats. I want to sock you in the jaw, he says. He also thinks he can deliver a monologue to her guests about how awful she is. Anne Sheridan intervenes and tells Paula to be kind because he's sick. Paula, rightly so, fires back, Sick my hat, he's fractured. And then she wants to know if Chris is taking sides. Few actors can raise a brow as high as Eve Arden with as much warning. The ex is Stinko. Anne Sheridan's Chris plays nursemaid and leads the ex-husband out. He tells her that she shouldn't hang out there because they have no respect for anything, decency or marriage. Lou backs him up. The unfaithful is remarkable for how it portrays marriage in the post-war years. This is the woman's picture equivalent of the best years of our lives. Women were not vacuum-locked in the home waiting for men to return. They had lives, they had needs, even before and after the war raged. And the era of wartime sacrifice had officially ended. Eve Arden, in her memoir, recalled that she felt as though she played three different characters during this production, and in some ways she's right. We do get three faces of Eve in the picture, and that's no complaint. She may have felt the picture lacked focus, except her part always seems to deliver exactly what it needs in the form of speeches that land right on the nose. Eve Arden swans in and puts the right spin on every scene. When we see her again, she steals the restaurant scene. I know where I'd want to sit, not with the glum fellows Zachary Scott and Lou Ayres that Anne Sheridan is saddled with. 
I'd want to eat with the ladies who lunch, led by Eve Arden in a quiet pinstripe suit and spray of fur in her hat. Each time Eve Arden appears, you realize how quiet this picture is and how strained and repressed the characters are. But then Eve glides in like an espresso martini, strong and potent. Lou and Zachary Scott treat Eve and her two pals as random gossips, but she does play Anne Sheridan's cousin in the film. She's family, after all. Wouldn't it have been odd if she didn't visit their table? And why shouldn't she ask about her cousin who faces a murder rap? Extending his sneer to yet another room, Lou Ayers says after she leaves, those witches, they ought to be measured for broomsticks. Again, I know where I'd like to sit for lunch. In another luncheon scene in Anne Sheridan's home, Eve Arden rattles off a speech in the kind of patter that reminds me of Sylvia Fowler in the fitting room at Black's, goading Mary Haynes into the next room to confront Crystal Allen. She has a matter-of-fact conviction as she checks off a list of how men are crazed beasts capable of anything, with news stories about dead bodies discovered all over the place. Then she offers a prediction. Believe me, the day will come when parents will give their daughters brass knuckles instead of a wristwatch at graduation. Let's make that happen. Eve Arden makes the most of throwaway lines such as, I look so guilty in the morning, while she wears yet another covet-worthy suit, this one in a light gray flannel with a cutout below the waist. But her last scene in the picture is one of the best from woman's pictures. Chris's husband, Zachary Scott, turns up at Paula's rooftop flat with a balcony and enviable view. She's reading, stretched out on her sofa with her glasses on and drinking coffee. The setting would rate high on our dream list of rooms of one's own. She brings him coffee and a cheese sandwich, the limits of her culinary talent, and yet another badge of honor she enjoys as a bachelor. Zachary Scott proves himself to be above typical male disdain. He doesn't argue or scold. He listens. Eve Arden gives him an earful. What she accuses him of might apply to a million men. He fell for Anne and married her two weeks before call of duty. When he objects that it was her choice, Eve reminds him that there was a band, his uniform, and that today we live routine. Anne never stood a chance. Then he disappeared for two and a half years, while Anne had but a letter a week and a photograph to sustain her vows. Eve Arden's speech exonerates every woman who took solace in a stranger's arms during the war. She basically commits grand larceny in how deftly she steals this picture. Recollections from Eve Arden and Vincent Sherman radically differ on the tone and importance of this production. Eve includes little more than a paragraph on on the film in her memoir, yet Sherman goes on for several pages. As with his other films, he makes a point of noting how much his work impressed Jack Warner. In fact, he says Warner was so pleased with the final cut that he permitted Sherman to basically name his price in contract negotiations. Three Phases of Eve, Eve Arden in Autobiography, published in 1985, she recalls her time working on the picture. The script was confusing, with the writers barely staying ahead of us. I found myself playing three different parts as we went along. When I complained to producer-writer Jerry Wald, he assured me that the rushes looked great and it would all come together in the final cut. There was nothing for any of us to do but call in a sense of humor. This we did to the point where one day we were unable to look each other in the eye without laughing. 
It became painful both to us and the director, but there was no help. If I gained enough control to read a line, Annie's lip would begin to quiver and her eyelashes would bat. Then Zach's voice would break and the director would yell, cut. As we struggled for composure, someone made the mistake of threatening to call Jack Warner down to the set. That did it. Tears of laughter ruined three makeups and we took a break to recover and repair. Only the fact that we were three of the studio's most professional actors saved our combined necks. The emotional tension among the actors from playing so many serious scenes made breakdowns into hysterics almost inevitable. If only someone had kept a blooper reel. I'll leave you with this excerpt from Studio Affairs, Vincent Sherman's memoir of his career as a Hollywood director. I have an idea, I ventured. Jerry has a first draft of a script called The Unfaithful. It's a modern story about marriage and divorce. It needs work, but I think it could make a good film and one that Sheridan would like. The plot is Somerset Mom's The Letter. But that means we'll have to wait months to get started. Not necessarily, I interjected. If you okay the project, I'll go to work with James Gunn, the writer. We can cast it here in the studio. I'll talk to the actors and tell them the story so that they will know their characters and what happens. We'll start with 20 pages of screenplay, see to it that they have their dialogue at least a day ahead, and begin shooting in two weeks. Don't be ridiculous, Warner protested. Sheridan won't start without a completed script, nor will the others. Let me talk to her. I'll explain everything, and I'm sure she'll help with the others. Okay, you can try, but you're wasting your time, he opined. Jerry was ready to help in any way he could, since it was another walled project. Back in his office, we jotted down Sheridan for the role Betty Davis had played in the letter. Zachary Scott as her husband, played by Herbert Marshall in the original. Lou Ayers as the attorney friend, formerly played by James Stevenson. And we added Eve Arden as a wisecracking friend of Sheridan's. Afterward, I called Anne and told her what had happened. I assured her that the unfaithful would be a good role for her and asked if she would help me with the other actors. She promised she would. I arranged a meeting in my office, told them the story of the letter and how we were using the plot, but changing the background and the intent for the unfaithful. I also explained the problem of getting started in two weeks and assured them they'd have a breakdown of scenes beforehand and dialogue at least a day ahead. After Anne told them they could trust me, they agreed to go along. I had meetings with all the departments involved in the production, and in two weeks we began shooting. Everything went well. There were no delays or holdups. One day, Warner called and asked me how I was feeling. I told him I was feeling fine. Why was he asking? Because if anything happens to you, he replied, I don't know what we'll do. Nobody knows what's going on except you. Don't worry, JL, I said. Everything will be all right. Are you sure it'll make sense when you're finished? I assured him and that we would have a good film. The hours I spent on The Unfaithful were unbelievable. After rising at 7 every morning, shooting from 9 o'clock until 6 in the evening or after, I'd have a bite to eat at a nearby restaurant and then sit with Jimmy Gunn until 11 or 12 at night, writing and rewriting and discussing future scenes. On one occasion, I had him rewrite one particular scene nine times. He was so incensed with me that he told me later that if I had turned down the ninth version, he was going to throw something at me. We finished the filming at a reasonable cost and with no problems. The actors worked well and each gave a fine performance. 
When we took the first cut to Warner's home for him to have a look, he sat quietly all through the running, unusual for him. Then the lights came on. There was a long silence as we waited for the verdict. He excused himself, went to the bathroom, and when he came back, he said to Trilling, Wald, me, and the editor, okay, turn it over to music and let him get right to work on it. He offered only a few minor suggestions for trims. I was not sure whether he liked the film or was just thankful that, under the circumstances, it was not a disaster. But as we left his home, he turned to me, come up to my office tomorrow, I want to talk to you. The next day, as I entered his office, completely unaware of what he had in mind, he motioned to me to have a seat in front of his desk and began, any son of a bitch who can make a picture like I saw last night without a script can stay here as long as he likes. Let's make a new deal. I was relieved to hear that he was pleased and thanked him for his offer, but I wondered if I had not been at Warner's long enough and should move on to another studio. Besides, my contract still had another two years to go. Let me think about it, JL, I suggested. All right, but you know, the grass is always greener, so it seems. Just let me know what you want. That night, I discussed it with Hedda, and we decided that it would be wise to accept Warner's offer, since it was well known that if you refused him, he'd give you lousy assignments in the future. It was also true that I felt at home in Warner's. I had been there almost 10 years, and we were like a family. Every morning in makeup, the actors would get together and have coffee and donuts, or larger breakfasts, gossip, and tell jokes and bitch about the front office. I'd often join them. What should I ask for? At the time, I was earning $2,000 per week, a modest sum compared to the salaries of other directors at major studios. Based on the profitable returns of the films I had made, I decided to ask for a five-year straight deal, no options, with four weeks guaranteed vacation each year and starting at $2,500 per week, with a $500 a week raise each year going to $4,000 and continuing to the end of the contract. When I presented the deal to Warner, he replied, you've got it. I called Hedda to tell her the news. I also called Sheridan to tell her how happy Warner was with the film and thanked her for her performance and cooperation. The Unfaithful was well received and Sheridan was happy. Thanks very much for listening. Sassmouth Dame's podcast will return in the first week of November 2018. Dr. Jennifer O'Mara from Trinity College Dublin will join me for episode 31 on Ziegfeld Girl from 1941. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific.